Last week we studied about deliberate discipleship, about how God wanted you to start as a believer, but move to a follower or a disciple. And you say, well, pastor, I believe in Jesus. And I told you that even the book of James says demons believe in who Jesus is. So God wanted us to take that next step of commitment and becoming a follower of Christ, a disciple, that we would know the words and the actions of Jesus so we can emulate them in our community, in our lives, in our living rooms, in our home. Today we're going to do something unique because it's about worship. And I am so moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, our youth, our young adults, are, have been studying all of 2019. Every Sunday and Wednesday have been studying on the topic of worship. And I thought, my goodness, if we're going to talk about worship... This is one of those rare moments where I've asked Pastor Alex to have the youth come into the sanctuary because I believe that at the end of this service today, I pray that everybody that goes to get in their car would say, I participated in an act of worship today. I didn't watch. I didn't watch as others sang. I, I, I want to make sure that we carve out a moment for you to spend in fellowship with God. And so today as I talk about worship, I want us to just put our hands together and let's welcome our teenagers into the, to the uh, sanctuary this morning. And so let me pray. I'm going to read a few texts. I'm going to use a couple of examples today in uh, the message. So I'm not going to just take one text and kind of break it apart. I'm going to take several. Um, so would you pray with me today? Father, remove every distraction from my heart and mind. Allow us to fully concentrate and oblige this encounter with the presence of an almighty God. That we are willing to give our all, not just a portion. But we're willing to take this next step in an act of worship that allows us to know that we've participated and I give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's start with the definition of what worship is. Let's start with what it's not first. First, it's not a song. You can worship with a song, but worship, a song in itself is not worship. You know what? There's so many misunderstandings of, of worship in the Bible. So why don't we just start with the dictionary definition. It says worship is a reverent honor or homage paid to God or a sacred object, adoring reverence or regard. Worship, when you think about it, a lot of times we think of worship as what we do here. I hope that that is not the totality of what you call worship. Because worship's about, I, you know, on an average, it's about 17 minutes here. And I'm here to tell you that I believe that your life, and I know that God deserves more than 17 minutes of your week. Can somebody say amen? amen. That you singing a few songs does not a lifestyle of worship make. And so worship is something that we have to do and participate in. But I want you to think of it like a breath. You know what? Sometimes God gives us perfect analogies to use to teach about deep subjects. And I think this is one of the best that I could ever use is taking a breath. Because you know what? As much as you want to inhale, you can inhale, 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 and inhale. You have still not taken a breath. It is not until you inhale and exhale that you do two things that combine to make one breath. 
And so worship sometimes is we want to do it where everybody is watching. And that is important. It's called corporate worship. But I don't think that we really can demonstrate and display corporately what we have not done privately. So I think worship is both private and corporate. I believe it's to be done when nobody sees and I would think it should be done when everybody's looking. So there's not a special formula. Well, if they play three fast songs and one slow song, we have worshiped today. No, they've just played three fast songs and one slow song. But what we can do is realize that everyone assigns something or someone to the most sacred or honorable positions in their life. In turn, everyone worships. They may not worship God, but they worship something or somebody. All worship is not right, and according to Scripture, all worship is not acceptable to God. Matter of fact, there's five, four or five different passages where it says people worshiped God, and He didn't accept it. He just said, no, nope, nope, I'm not going to do that. It's half-hearted. Matter of fact, one place he says your heart's not in it at all. Alex is one that, you know, comes up with some of these great scriptures that we live by in our staff, like the one in Jude where he just goes, he went around a whole week saying, I'm just snatching folks from the fire. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, Jude said we could just snatch folks from the fire. Now he's quoting an Old Testament prophet that says, your songs and the noise that you make troubles me deeply. Can you imagine God saying, all I'm hearing when you say you're worshiping is a bunch of noise because your lack of obedience tells me where your heart is and your heart is not in what you're singing. You're going through the motions and saying the right words and playing the right notes, but you are far from me. And so when we start talking about worship, we've got to go back to where we ended up with discipleship. And if this is your first Sunday, we ended kind of... We had a great Sunday last week with talking about discipleship, going from a believer to a follower. But there's some things that if you don't really understand the Bible, there's some things that can complicate your faith, like the book of Luke. Because the book of Luke says something in there that gets so confusing because we don't really know how to interpret it. And that's the problem. And I asked everybody last week, how many of you have heard somebody speak to you a paragraph in, in Greek? And uh, like eight hands went up. Most of the time you hear in Greek when a pastor says, here's the Greek word and here's how to pronounce it and this is what it means. Well, the translators in Luke, I believe it's chapter 14, start talking about how they didn't want to take away the passion that Jesus was preaching with, but yet they didn't have a word that translated into English that could really fit his passion. So they used the word uh, inappropriately, really, for the most part, for our confusion. And they used a word called hate. How many of you believe you know the definition of the word hate? Say amen. It's that negative word, you know, surrounded by anger and bitterness and you just hate something or somebody. And the Bible tells you not to hate, right? Amen. Yeah, the problem is, is that in Luke 14, Jesus says you got to hate your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your wife, your kids, if you want to be my disciple. And we're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't hate my wife. I love that lady over there. So am I not a disciple? But when you really realize the impact of the Greek word there that is interpreted hate, it means to love less. And what God is telling me is, David, I need you to love me more than you love everybody else. I need you to love me more than you do your mom and dad. They're here today. And I'm going to publicly tell them, I love Jesus more than I love mom and dad. I love Jesus more than I love Michelle. I love Jesus more than mom, dad, Michelle, and Josh, uh, David and Josh. 
I love Jesus more than mom, dad, Michelle, David, Josh, Mila, and Riley. And Melissa and Aaliyah. I love, I love Jesus more than And you say, Pastor, that's harsh. No, what happens is, is that when, you love, when I love Jesus more than anything else, He qualifies me to be a great husband because I've learned how to love Him. And when I learn how to love Him, I now know how to love my wife. And in turn, I always... And, and some people, it, it gets a little sticky around the pleasant household sometimes. My kids knew if they ever put me in the position of choosing them or my wife, I would always choose Michelle. You say, why? I love her more. <laughs> well, I love everybody the same. You need this message more than I do. <laughs> because if I love God most of all, and I love their mom most, uh, second to that, then I've provided a home called safety that they'll know mom and dad ain't never breaking up. Mom and dad is going to get through the rough times and the bad times. Mom and dad ain't going nowhere and that provides them a love that is untarnished and they can live in safety because I put things in correct order and position. That's what worship is all about. Putting God in His correct position because God is a stickler about position. Touch your neighbor and say He's a stickler for position. Exodus 34, verses 13 and 40, You shall tear down their altars, break up their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He reiterates this in Exodus chapter 20 when he's quoting the Ten Commandments and saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall serve no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's telling you, if you'll tear down all your idols, well, pastor, we don't struggle with idolatry anymore. I beg to differ. I know back in Bible days, they were making birds out of like wood and stone. And I, that always confused me and complicated things for me. Like, what do you got to do to trick your mind? Because eventually you got to say, I made that. <laughs> and if I made something, I'm over that. Because it couldn't be without my hands. That's why none of you made God, God. I know sometimes you think you did him a favor by coming forward one day and walking through a little step or two of humility and confessing your sins and, and trading he heaven for hell. And I know you think you made God God, but I'm here to tell you I'm breaking the prideful spirit today so we can go ahead and worship at the end of this thing. You didn't make him God, nor did he become God because you worship him. He has thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels at this very moment declaring his glory through out the kingdoms of heaven and all of a sudden you think your voice made him God? Oh, I beg to differ. No, he didn't benefit at all by your side of the equation, but you benefited a lot by him joining your team. Here's another touch your neighbor moment. Look at them and tell them misappropriated position or misappropriated worship is the definition of idolatry.
You say, Pastor, clarify that. That's a lot of words for me to be telling my neighbor. You may not be struggling with a wood carving of a bird, but if you're sitting on the number one position of your life, you are robbing him of his position. You and you alone, can't. you will either worship something or somebody, and most of us, including myself, I fall prey to worshiping David Pleasant more than anything else. And when I start worshiping David Pleasant, God leaves me on my own until life overwhelms me. And he says, pray to yourself, see how that works out. But the moment I place him in his current and his proper position and say you are more than enough and you are the one that sits on the throne of my life and I surrender my life to who you are as acts of obedience, I will worship you day and night. It is at that moment where intimacy is restored. See, you were created in the garden to know and enjoy God. You were created for proximity. You were created for close encounters. Matter of fact, the book of Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 start to describe how intimate God and man was when he walked in the cool of the day with him. Can you imagine that walk? Can you imagine that walk where you are walking shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand with an almighty God that created everything and you are operating on 100% of your, the capacity of your brain. We now operate at about 10%. Genius is about 14%. Can you imagine 100% walking in fellowship with God in close proximity where you are walking shoulder to shoulder with Him? And He said, and I, I mean, I, I want to go on that walk when I get to heaven and look at the ocean and say, how did you do that? And He just says, oh, man, it wasn't nothing. I just stepped out on nothing, man, and started talking. And the authority of what I say started to come into being. And I just looked at where there wasn't anything and said, let there be an ocean there. See, he wants our full undivided attention. See, when we fell, sin separated us from God. And in that separation, there was a time period between the separation and the fall and the cross. But what people found out was even though they felt distant and now they were worshiping through altars and sacrifices and priests, they found out that there was a fast pass. Anybody ever been to Disney World here lately? And you were rich enough to get the fast pass? I've never been that rich. We just had to stand in line. My kids were like, yeah, what? I'm like, oh man, you just regular people stand in line. So it builds character. <laughs> But daddy, that sign says we're an hour and 15 minutes away from the ride. It builds character, son. Just stand here. Because the longer we stand in this line, I don't have to pay $28 for a hamburger. <laughs> but what, the, what started happening in the Old Testament is they, they, they learned that worship was the fast pass to intimacy with God. And all of a sudden you turn a few pages and there stands David. Shepherd, 12, 14 years old, standing in a field with sheep. Oh, don't rush the story. Don't get him to 15 or 16 where he's getting oil poured over his head. Keep him at 12. 
Because at 12, 13, 14 years old, he don't know any better and nobody knows his name and nobody's watching. But in the field of an of a, a occupation where there was the lowest occupation on the totem pole, there stood a young boy worshiping with all of his heart, declaring love songs to an almighty God. Sometimes he had his harp. Sometimes he just had a stick. Sometimes he just started talking and started making these, these gestures before God. And lo and behold, God... God of heaven started meeting with a boy in Bethlehem, outside of Bethlehem in a, in a field full of sheep. And he met with him so intimately that he would whisper in his ear. Say, Pastor, I've never read where he whispered in his ear. How else will a bear come into the field, grab a lamb? You don't go, hey, let's go do hand-to-hand combat with a bear. Hey, let's go wrestle a lion today with my bare hands. No, he's walking close enough to the one that he sung to. That he, The Bible says that he stole the heart of God. That by the time that the bear enters the field, he says, go get him, boy. I'm with you. And a 14-year-old boy runs towards a bear and tears him apart with his bare hands, not because he was supernatural or superhero in strength, but because he walked in fellowship with an almighty God. So you get him at 15 facing a giant. He don't think there's nothing to it. Oh man, y'all are picking me up at the wrong end of the story. Saul's telling him, you can't do that. He's a man of war. He said he may be a man of war. And I can't wear your junk because you weren't in the field when I heard the whisper. You weren't in the field when he told me to go chase a bear. You weren't in the field when he told me to tear apart a lion. So this Philistine that's nine foot tall will not match the tithe of my God. I've walked with him. Can somebody say amen? Well, here's the part about worship, because we can shout right there. But then you go to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet that doesn't participate in worship. He's invited to a moment of worship. All of a sudden, he has a vision of God. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, when trouble was happening, all of a sudden, I get so many people that are so... And, and politics are important, and I have not probably showed the proper assignment for politics because there's a problem. There, there's people here on both sides of the argument. I try to stay away from that mess. <laughs> Some of you think that God is a card-carrying Republican. He's not. He's just God. But that's enough of the politics. But that's what the whole chapter is about, it's politics. See, they had a good king, a righteous king, a wise king that was living wise and righteous before them. And all of a sudden he died and now corruption. And all of a sudden the prophet looks at his sons and says, he, he ain't half the man his dad is. And what's going to happen to Israel? And God gives him a vision. Everything's going to be okay, son. Because in the midst of chaos, he saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting on his throne. And this is the thing about worship. Most of the time in private worship, that's what I'm talking about. Private worship. That's when nobody else is watching. That's when you're doing it in your car. If you, this is going to be just a nugget. This is a rabbit. Ten seconds. Give God as much time as you give, um, what do they call that thing? Taxi karaoke? Card what? Cardpool karaoke. You know, when you think you are now Beyonce and you're just singing in there like nobody, give God some of that. I know you're listening, you're waiting for some 
producer to stop at a red light and say, roll down your window, man. I heard you singing over there and you sound just like Beyonce. I promise you, if you start doing that towards God, He will show up in your car. The producer will never come, but He will come and say, man, you sound just like Beyonce. But here's the problem with worship. Anybody ever got close to God? We call it the goosebump moment. You know, when you actually think you've stumbled into the sovereignty of the presence of God. And we love that feeling. The problem is, is that identifies that God's still a long way away. Your goosebumps doesn't mean He's close. Now, what happens when He gets close is all of a sudden you have now this prophet, he's seeing God high and lifted up, his train fills the temple, and he feels the goosebumps and the awe moment, and then God invites him to get closer, and the closer he gets, the sadder he feels. Because every step he takes towards God, he starts to feel conviction. By the time he, he's not even to God yet, and he's going, oh man, this is going to be it, he's going to kill me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm a sinful man of unclean lips. And that's the problem with worship is once we get to the conviction part, we think God's trying to identify how we should feel guilty. No, he's identifying that if you keep getting closer, he knew who you were before you started coming and he allowed you to be there anyway. The man with uh, the sinful man with unclean lips was the one invited to the moment of worship where the seraphims are flying around declaring his holiness. <laughs> and we get uneasy because we think that God's identifying our guilt. Ooh. I'm going to direct this for the men. I know some of you ladies are guilty of this sin, but I'm not going to really throw it at you. The men can handle it because we probably all pray to it more than you do. When you start working, when you start singing towards God and He starts showing up and He gets close and all of a sudden you have a moment of intimacy and close encounter and He invites you to get closer and we come into that moment where guilt and, and conviction comes to the surface and you remember last, last Thursday I looked at on my computer and I saw pornography and it freezes you in your steps. Because you think that God wants you to fall to your knees and ask forgiveness of, of what looking at pornography last Thursday. You've missed the moment. Yeah, your forgiveness probably is appropriate. You're, you're, you're begging for forgiveness and asking Him to forgive you of that sin is probably appropriate. But that's not why He wants you to get closer. He wants you to understand why you still have a need for lust and why you're still broken on the inside. And if you just keep coming to Him, you can find wholeness. It's not about bringing the guilt to the surface. It's about bringing your brokenness to the surface so He could be whole. So He could heal you and deliver you and set you free. If you could ever get past the, uh, uh, the angst of the negative connotation that is associated with conviction, you could have breakthrough instead of just forgiveness. Because what happens when you got forgiven the last time? You did it again and again and again, and then you promised you'd never do it again if He just forgave you one more time and you did it again. But if we could solve the issue on the inside that can only come for that face-to-face -face moment with God, we could set you free. He didn't call you into His presence to make you feel guilty. He called you to make you whole. That's a good touch-your-neighbor moment. Say, touch your neighbor and say, He called you to make you whole. Amy, if you'll get ready with your team, whoever's going to help you, start playing something. Because we got one more woman to visit. She's Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is so misunderstood. She's misunderstood by the Pharisees. She's misunderstood by His disciples. 
Matter of fact, at this moment of worship, it actually convinces Judas to sell him. It convinces the Pharisees to kill him. Because all of a sudden you have the Mary, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointing him for what I believe is the second time. I like the first anointing. When she, the Bible says in the book of Luke that she was a sinner from Bethany. And she found out that Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house. See, we just think that people are born righteous. Let me just clarify. She didn't buy the perfume for Jesus. Took her a year to, to gather enough money to buy the perfume, not counting the box. The box was just as valuable as the perfume. <laughs> and she bought the perfume for herself, but when she realized who he was and the worth that she was going to apply to him, she went back home and went into her house and said, what's the most valuable thing I got? Oh, it's my perfume. I'll take it in the box. And she slips into a house. And the first thing she does is not pour oil on his head. The first thing she does is sneak behind him and get down on her knees and puts her, his feet in her hands and starts to cry. And as she's crying, she's wetting her feet and she does something unique of the age. She takes down her hair, which is a sign of disgrace or, or humility. She's now becoming vulnerable. Her reputation doesn't mean anything to her anymore because she has the feet of the one that she has recognized as being the Son of God in her hand. And the only thing that she has to dry her tears from his feet is her hair. And so she loosens her hair. It falls to the ground. And she starts to wipe his feet. And as she's wiping his feet, she is kissing them. And then she pours the oil on his head. Simon, a Pharisee, says, He's not a prophet. We've just proved it. If he was a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. A sinful woman. He looks at Simon and says, Simon, I'm going to tell you a little story here. There's a man that owes me a lot of money and there's a man that doesn't owe me quite as much. And I forgave them both. Which one loves me more? He said, the one that you forgave the most. He said, you're right. And her sins are many. But I've forgiven her today. You had my attention, but I walked in your house and you have not provided a servant or water for me to wash my feet. And she has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears and kiss them with her lips. See, sometimes we think the extravagance is what we buy or what we can uh, uh, assess as value. He valued her tears as much as the oil. Her kisses meant more to him than the box. But she breaks the box and pours out the oil as an act of worship to the one that was going to go to the cross. By the time you get her in John chapter 12, she's anointing him once again for burial. He's, about, he's a week away from the cross. And here's this woman back at his feet, worshiping again, saying, I can't forget what you did back there in Simon the leper's house. I can't forget that who you've made me. I can't forget you are worth it all. Is he? Is he really worth that woman with the two pennies?
man, I could get crazy right here. Let's just go ahead and deal with it. What do you think? Yeah, uh, some people ask me, is, is tithing for the New Testament or the Old Testament? Ah, uh, well, you figure it out. She didn't tithe. No, tithe would have been 10% of two cents. Do I think it's a principle that God wants you to continue? Absolutely. But then we would have said, well, she did something. What if she had just took one penny? That's 50% of everything she's got. She said, no, he's worth it all. Here, let me get it in my pocket and just get, hand it to you. See, that's where I mess up. Jerry, so many times when, when I, I would have, if I was God right then, I'd have messed up. Because I'd have gave her not only her two pennies back, but I'd have gave her more. I'd have stopped everybody and said, she gave it all. No, he dignified the gift as an act of worship and says, you're going to go home broke today, but my eyes are upon you. That two cents, whatever you could have bought with it, I promise you my eyes are more valuable than the two pennies in your pocket. You said I was worth it all, and I will walk with you every step of your life. When you face the mountains, I'll help carry you when you can't walk anymore. When you face the valleys and you think it's so dark that the darkness will consume you, I will be the light of the world for you. See, I would give her temporary comfort by giving her some more money, but she needed him more than she needed the money. And so, Pastor, are we supposed to tithe? You're supposed to give it all to him. Your life a laid down sacrifice of who and worth the worth in which you assign to him. Because why? He wants to get close. Here's where I hope this place catches on fire. Stand right there. Worship is about proximity. The moment that Alex decides to worship, that worship builds a platform and an acceleration for intimacy. And his worship is a spiritual step. Take that step. And then I respond. Oh, man. Oh, stop, Seraphim. Slow down a little bit. I hear a voice that is unusual. It's in his little red car. And he's singing. Oh, wait a minute. No, he's in the youth room with a guitar. And not an audience around. But now he's calling my name. In his act of worship, he takes a step and I take a step. And I know now he's getting the awe, the goosebumps. But yet he's determined to keep coming. He takes one more step and conviction starts to fall. He remembers all of his human frailty compared to my, uh, my sovereignty and my holiness. The closer we get, the holiness precedes the almighty God. And the more holiness he experiences, the more conviction comes to the surface. But he's not about to give up on an encounter. This is where most people end their worship. They say amen. They quit the song. But if you'll keep worshiping and take one more step, he will will take one too. And you'll start hearing the, the rumor of a voice and you'll start hearing him say, I know what you did last Thursday, but I'm coming anyway. I knew who you were back over there, but I heard your song. I heard your worship. And finally we get to right here and we're almost there. But the moment we get to here, it's the only place he could hear my whisper. It's when I say, hey, it's the sound of the one that told the shepherd boy in a field that was a nobody and nobody knew his name. I told him in a whisper he was a king. I told a flawed prophet when he recognized he was a sinful man of unclean lips. I said, you're enough to be my voice. 
I told a sinful woman with a box of oil and a box of perfume that she could have forgiveness when I whispered in her ear. I'm not asking you to know more about God. I'm asking you to experience Him. Michelle don't want me to write a paper on how to hold her hand. She just wants to feel my hand touch her hand and say this is a moment where you and I will experience. He doesn't want you to sing about Him. He wants you to sing to Him. He wants you to get your Bible. Well, pastor, I'm waiting on a prophet. Open up the book. You've got about 10 or 11 of them in there. The prophet. You need some poetry? Go to Psalms and Proverbs. You need experience, go to the New Testament. You need the Holy Spirit, go to Acts chapter 2. You got what you need. But we won't get close because we, we would rather have our personal situations than to have the intimacy. struggled my whole vocational ministry with fighting the desire to build a crowd. I look out here today and we have a fair crowd, but there's about, I don't know, 15, 20 seats empty. And if I'm not careful Monday morning, I'll think about how to fix the 20 seats that are empty. But I finally come to a place. I love you, but I don't love you most. I'll trade you in a second for intimacy with Him. I, I, I don't need, matter of fact, my private worship doesn't have you in it at all. But next week we get to corporate worship and this place is liable to tear the roof off. What would happen if you got close enough for Him to whisper in your ear? I wonder what He would tell you, Pat. But whatever He would tell you would be the same voice that He told a shepherd boy outside of Bethlehem. Same voice that told a prophet. Same voice that told a woman with perfume. What would happen if you walked through the conviction and got to His presence? I can't preach this and go to a regular altar call. We've got to worship. And if you worship in the first song and you find a place of dismissal, can't wait to see you again next week. If you're lost and you need to get saved today, the same God that whispered in the ear of a woman with perfume will whisper in your ear, you're forgiven. What happens when he gets this close? you stand to your feet say pastor why are you making a stand because if you're sitting you may listen to this woman sing or these people sing I'm not asking you to listen I'm asking you for to participate I'm asking you to take one step and the moment you take a step he'll take a step nobody's gonna call you to the altars the altars are open nobody's gonna beg you to come I'm just telling you, He's here. And He 
he's worth it all. 